Well, good morning. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to go straight into today's sermon. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Lord, thank you that when we look around at the moment, we see so many reasons to worship you. So many things to give thanks for, so many blessings to count. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. You are a God who values us, who classes us as a treasure above all treasures. Father God, as we come to you this morning to open up your word, we pray that you will open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts and open our minds so that we may receive what you want us to receive this morning. Father, you know what's going on in each and every one of our lives. You know all the different conversations that we've had, the worries that we have, the joys that we have. You know everything about us, Lord. And so we bring those things to you this morning, Father. We, we lay them at your feet and now we turn our eyes to you. With the worship ringing in our ears, we open your word and we pray that through it, you will speak to us today, drawing us closer and helping us to better understand our role in your kingdom. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are looking at Luke's Gospel. and It's the third instalment of the series that we're doing at the moment called Four Gospels, One Jesus. Cast your minds back a couple of weeks, you'll remember Ian speaking about Matthew and about how Matthew was very much focused on the Jewish tradition, his Jewish readership, making sure that he demonstrated to them beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus was the promised Messiah that the Jewish scriptures had spoken about, that the Jewish tradition had been anticipating for generations. He showed prophecies fulfilled. He showed the, the Pharisaic teaching undermined and, and fulfilled by Jesus. He showed the law being fulfilled by Jesus. And he demonstrated how Jesus was and is God's son. Last week, you remember Mark's gospel and the way that Mark takes us at this breakneck speed through, through the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't bother with, with Christmas, he doesn't bother with the childhood, he goes straight in to the, 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 the main ministry of Jesus and takes us through that. And he demonstrated to probably a Gentile readership, possibly the church in Rome seems to be the most likely um, intended readership. He demonstrates that Jesus is not just a Messiah for the Jews, but he is a Messiah for all of God's created people. That means you and I. And then we finish with the, the ambiguous ending that leaves us, the, the reader, whether it's us today or whether it was the original readership a couple of thousand years ago, in that cemetery with those women having just been told, go and tell about Jesus because he's risen, because he is the son of God. And it left us with that, that, that question, how are we personally going to respond to what we've just read in Mark's gospel? So we had Matthew writing for the Jewish audience. We had Mark writing very much for the Gentile audience. Luke is a very different gospel in that respect. Luke doesn't have a people group in mind when he's writing. And yet he's the only author who actually tells us explicitly who, his, who he is writing for. Luke's gospel begins with this statement. 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, Matthew and Mark didn't tell us who they were writing for. They, they sort of left it for us to work it out for ourselves. But Luke puts a formal introduction in. He is, he is writing for a specific person, Theophilus. But who is Theophilus? And it's an important question because sometimes knowing who someone is writing for helps us to understand better what they're saying and why they're saying it. But the fact is, we're not entirely sure who Theophilus actually is. Now, some people say that the, the name Theophilus means, quite literally, loved by God. Theo being the word for God, the Latin word for God. So is this gospel simply, is this introduction Luke's way of saying this gospel is written for everybody who is loved by God? Everybody who is a follower of the way? Possibly. But Theophilus was a common name given to individuals, so it seems unlikely, it seems more likely that, that Theophilus was an individual. Most excellent Theophilus is how Luke addresses him. And this is a, um, a, a way of addressing which was only used in, for two other people in, in, in um, Luke's writing. They were both Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and we, we see Luke writing about them in, in Acts 22 and Acts 26. And he addresses them as most excellent. So does that, this suggest that Theophilus is a Roman governor, someone who carried a lot of authority and influence in Rome, and Luke is writing to him to, to convince him that the Christian faith is not a faith that is a threat to the Roman Empire, but is a faith of peace and compassion and love, and something that should be embraced rather than oppressed and persecuted. There was, in the time that Paul found himself in Rome under house arrest, a prominent Roman lawyer called Theophilus. Some scholars have suggested that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are Luke's witness statement writing to get Paul off the hook, as it were, to, to fight Paul's corner, and that Luke wrote this to present to, to Paul's barrister, the person who was acting on his behalf. There were two high priests in Jerusalem in, in the first century who bore the name Theophilus. It has been suggested that Luke was writing to them as a way of, of demonstrating, almost similar to Matthew, that Jesus was the Son of God. But possibly the most likely explanation is that Theophilus was a wealthy Gentile who provided funds for Luke's and Paul's mainly, uh, missionary journeys. The fact is, we don't know who Theophilus was. But maybe this introduction tells us more about Luke than it does about Theophilus. It tells us Luke is someone who is aware that many 
Many people have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us. Many people have, have written their little experiences of, of what happened, what their experience of Jesus was, what happened when they were in the presence of Jesus or what they saw Jesus do or what they've heard about Jesus. He says some of these people were actually eyewitnesses. They were there. Others have written what they've heard from, from other people. And Luke is a very fastidious student. He's looked around, he's seen all these varying accounts, some of which seem to be conflicting or contradictory, and he's undertaken to study them all and to produce an unbiased, factual account of the life of Jesus. He says, he says I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. So that's Luke's aim. If he was writing out an experiment plan, that would be his aim. At the end of this investigation, at the end of the study of all of these different accounts and, and sources and resources and at the end of all these interviews and, and everything else that's going to take place, at the end of the whole thing, I want to produce one account. And that's what I'm going to present to you, Theophilus, so that you, for yourself, may read what actually happened. Luke is a medical man. In Acts, we read about him um, being referred to as a physician. He is a doctor, if you like, although his methods may have been slightly different to doctors that practice nowadays. But Luke's also a historian. He places great value on, on placing different events in history. For instance, straight after the introduction in, in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So immediately, Luke begins by, by allowing Theophilus, by allowing his readership, to take a pin and stick it into history in exactly the, the, the time when this took place. Luke realises that it's important to be able to identify when this happened. And so Luke's gospel is important from a historical perspective as well as a spiritual one. He goes on with, with a, similar, a similar pattern right at the start of chapter 2. He says about the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So again... He gives us an opportunity. He's told us about, about John the Baptist, about Mary and Zechariah, Elizabeth and Zechariah, about Mary. He's told us what's happened and then he sticks another pin in history so we can, we can identify when the birth of Jesus took place. Again, at the start of chapter 3, we've seen Jesus' birth, we've seen his childhood and there's another pin to stick into, into history to help us to plot where and when these things took place. The start of chapter 3, Luke writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So he pinpoints in history exactly when John the Baptist's ministry began. So Luke is, is, is true to his word. He investigates all the evidence. He looks at, at all the different accounts. And one of the things that he does is make sure that it fits in with history, that the timeline fits. He also gives us a long genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Adam. Now, many people flick over that bit. It's not the most scintillating of reading, but it's important because it helps, it helps the first century readership look at the scriptures and work back from Jesus. It helps us today to look back at all those people in the life and line of Jesus and see where Jesus came from, see how even Jesus' bloodline makes sense to him being the Son of God, the Messiah. So Luke's Gospel could be split into four main sections. The first, the first four chapters recall Jesus' pre-birth, when we hear about John the Baptist being, uh, being conceived and being born. Then we have Jesus' birth, then we have his childhood. Luke is the only Gospel that gives us any insight into what happened to Jesus between um, the age of about three and the age of about 30. And then... It shows us him being prepared for ministry. From chapter 4 to chapter 9, Luke records the actual account of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And we see him teaching, we see him healing, we see him fulfilling the mission that he's been given. The next 10 chapters after that, up to chapter 19, show his journey with his disciples to Jerusalem. And then finally, the last five chapters show his time in Jerusalem, then the passion, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and finally his ascension. And that's the pattern of, of Luke's gospel. But Luke gives us a bit more than that. It's not just a, a factual account. Luke gives us more detail about the person of Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 18, he records Jesus being in his, his hometown, and he stands up in the temple and he reads from the scriptures. He reads from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This mission statement is something that Luke sticks to. He records it here for a specific purpose, because he wants to show Theophilus and any other readership that Jesus had a purpose. Later on, in chapter 7, verse 21, we see at that very time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. This is Jesus fulfilling his mission statement. This is Jesus showing compassion and love to those who are afflicted with some sort of, some sort of illness or some sort of spiritual affliction. 
This is the Jesus that Luke wants to demonstrate. He's not the Jesus of Matthew who, who sought to fulfil prophecy and, and have conflicts with the Pharisees at every opportunity to show that they'd completely missed the point of God's law. He's not the Jesus of Mark's gospel who goes at breakneck speed from, from one, one place to another, to another, to another, leading up to the big culmination on the cross and then in the, in the, in the tomb afterwards. Instead, Luke's Jesus goes from afflicted person to afflicted person. He goes to the tax collectors who were the scourge of society. He goes to women who don't get much of a look in in the scriptures, in the other gospels. He goes to sinners, that blanket term, which we now recognise today can be applied to each and every one of us. But in Jesus's time, seems to be a little bit more specific in its use. Jesus doesn't discriminate. Jesus speaks to Samaritans. Jesus goes to lepers. Jesus spends his time with the people who need a saviour. Luke's Jesus is one of compassion and love. We're told in, in chapter 8, after this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom the seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So here we see Jesus has, Jesus has ministered to these women who are clearly influential individuals. They, are, they, they mix in high circles and most importantly, they're wealthy. They support Jesus's ministry out of their own means. These women don't get a look in in any, any of the other Gospels, but Luke makes a point because women, like tax collectors, like other sinners, as they're often labelled, women didn't have a particularly high status in society, but clearly these ones did. And Jesus got to know them. Jesus ministered to them. And they were so, so convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that not only did they follow him, but they funded his ministry as well. We see Jesus showing pity. Luke's Jesus is, is not the all-action superhero of Mark's gospel, but instead he's a far more compassionate individual. In chapter 9, Luke writes these words. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So make no mistake about it, Luke's Jesus is not some slightly soft individual. He's not someone who wouldn't say no and, and was a bit of a doormat. Jesus, when he was about soon to be taken up to heaven, resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. He knew what was before him. He knew what was coming. He sets out resolutely, with purpose, forcefully, determined, resolute to go to Jerusalem. Luke's Jesus is just as ferocious as Mark's, but Luke emphasises the compassionate side of Jesus's character far more. And we see that in this passage as Luke goes on. He sent messengers on ahead 
who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. The Samaritans heard that a group of Jews were coming on their way to Jerusalem. Well, they're not welcome here. Not in my backyard. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. So here was an opportunity for Jesus to, to, to call down fire and destroy this village because they'd had the audacity to refuse to allow them to stay there the night, to, to feed them, to, to water them, to share company. They'd, they'd point blank refused. And James and John are angry about this. They've seen Jesus calming the storm. They've seen him healing. They know he's got this supernatural power. They know that this could be an opportunity to get one over on the Samaritans to destroy them. Because <laughs> we're right and you're wrong. We've got Jesus. You haven't. But no. No. Luke's Jesus teaches us not to treat others who are different to us differently. Jesus in Luke's gospel doesn't see the division between Jew and Samaritan. They don't want me to stay here. Okay, we'll find somewhere else. It's not a reason to, to scorn them. It's not a reason to destroy them. It's not a reason to abuse my messianic power. They don't want me to stay the night. It's okay, we'll go somewhere else. I think in the past 12 months, as the Black Lives Matter movement has gathered pace and on a, on a daily basis, we're still seeing headlines of, that highlight the ways in which, in which racism has subtly portrayed itself in, in, in our corporate and sometimes personal lives. We need to look back at Luke's Jesus. We need to look back at the way that he treated the lower divisions of society, the way that he didn't see any division between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, black or white. Instead, Jesus sees the person that God created, that God loves, and Jesus loves them too. We can all learn lessons from that demonstration of love, because so often, even though we, we follow Jesus, we don't always take the right path to following him. We can all make the mistakes. We can all have that, that reaction of James and John. They're different to me. They're not doing what I want them to do. I know that this is what God wants, so let's destroy them. No, let's not. Let's not. Let's demonstrate compassion and grace and love, because that's what God wants us to do. Luke talks a lot about riches and possession, about wealth. In chapter 18, we see Jesus encountering the rich ruler. The ruler comes up to him and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. And the guy says, I've done all that. That's, yeah, fine, I'm, I'm there. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. 
the ruler goes away disappointed because he's, he's, he's a ruler. He's very, very wealthy. He has land, he has property, he has livestock, he probably has slaves. He's a wealthy individual and the thought of giving away all of that, I can't. Now this is not to say that each and every one of us should empty our bank accounts and, and give away our homes and our cars and, and come to Jesus with nothing. But it is a lesson that we should be prepared to do that. We should be prepared to put Jesus first. We should be prepared to be obedient to whatever he tells us to do. Jesus knows that this, this rich young ruler, he cannot do that. He knows that there will never be anything in this guy's life that is bigger than his wealth. And he wants, he wants to follow Jesus because he wants to inherit eternal life. In other words, he wants something else to add to the list of wealth that he's got. And Jesus says, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. If you want to inherit eternal life, then that's got to be the, the only thing that you have. But of course, God will then bless you with others. But are you prepared to take that commitment? Are you prepared to risk it all? And the man cannot do that. Someone who can do that, though, is Zacchaeus. And Luke tells us the account of Zacchaeus and teaches us about, about what happened when Zacchaeus was so desperate. This, this tiny little tax collector who was miserly with his money and cheated people and, and was, was despised and had no friends. And he hears Jesus is coming and, and he goes running, running along the road and climbs a tree. And, and Jesus sees him and says, get down. I'm going to come and have tea with you. I'm going to eat with you. And as Jesus shares the meal with Zacchaeus, we don't know what's said. Luke doesn't give us that, that insight. But what we do know is at the end of that meal, when Jesus leaves Zacchaeus' house, he says to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back the amount four times. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what is lost. The son of man came to seek and save what is lost. That's, that's the mission statement. That's the, the culmination of the mission statement of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Jesus, the son of man, came to seek and save what is lost, to be restored so they can be restored to God the Father. Now, of course, there was a Luke part two. The book of Acts is a continuation of Luke's writing to Theophilus. And in the book of Acts, Luke begins by reminding Theophilus what's taken place in Luke's gospel. He goes on and and talks about Jesus's ascension and then Pentecost and then the birth of the early church and then the development of the early church and the way that there was a persecution in Jerusalem and the disciples were spread almost like a, a stone dropping in a mill pond. They were spread and spread and spread from Jerusalem. And you can see the Great Commission beginning to be fulfilled and the, the church being spread and the gospel being taken to the all over the, the known world at the time. And at times... Luke is talking in the third person. He's, he's, he's recalling what he's heard has happened to Paul and his followers. But then halfway through, he starts talking about we and our. We did this. We went here. And so Luke clearly travelled with Paul. He was part of the journey of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke was giving eyewitness account at that stage. And so, in a way, 
Luke's Gospel and Acts bleed into one. They are two separate books, Luke himself acknowledges that, but they give us a complete insight from from the birth of Jesus right the way up to the end of the book of Acts, when the church is established, when Paul has, has, has done his best to get an audience with Caesar. He's, he's gone, been arrested and arrested and arrested, and he's had opportunities to be released, but he hasn't taken them because he is so convinced that Jesus, the Jesus of love and compassion and grace and mercy, who stands with the oppressed, who stands with the persecuted, who loves each and every single one of us, regardless of our age, our race, our culture, our colour, our heritage, our title. Jesus loves us. And Paul wants to get an audience with the highest authority on earth so that he could make that clear to them. Luke's Gospel teaches us a lot about humility. It teaches us about a Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. Right at the end of Luke's Gospel, after the crucifixion after the resurrection. We have a story that is unique to Luke. It's a story of two men who were travelling to a village called Emmaus and Jesus just appears with them and as he appears he listens to what they were talking about but they didn't recognise who he was even though they were talking about all the events that had taken place in Jerusalem at that time. And Jesus says, what are, you, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in the past few days? What things? asked Jesus. So Luke sets up this, this summary of what's happened for, for Theophilus. This is, this is Luke the, the historian, or maybe even Luke the, the writing for a barrister of some sort. He gives a summary of what has happened in Jerusalem to Jesus. And Jesus is the one giving it. Jesus is the one talking about what he's experienced, what he's been through. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So they host him. They invite him in and say, stay with us. The day's nearly over. You can, you can sleep here. You're welcome here. You're a stranger to us, but that's OK. They show hospitality. They invite Jesus in. Look what happens next, though. When he was at, ta- at the table with them, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. You see, as soon as they invite Jesus in, he suddenly becomes the giver, the host. He takes the bread, he takes the authority, he takes the role of host. Suddenly he's in control of the meal and what's going on, the distribution of the food. He takes the bread and breaks it and gives it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. But I'll tell you what, he didn't disappear from their hearts. You see, this is 
this is, an, this is a lesson for us. At that moment, they've discussed and discussed and discussed what happened with Jesus. They discussed the crucifixion. They discussed the trials. They discussed the arrest. They discussed the glorious entry on Palm Sunday. They discussed the reports of the resurrection. They were talking about everything that's happened, trying to make sense of it, discussing it, discussing it, discussing it. And then suddenly, when they invite Jesus in, that's when the change happens. I don't know if you're watching this thinking, I don't know where I am with faith. I'm... I know what the Bible says. I know the different ideas. I, I think I, I know a lot about the life of Jesus, but I don't actually get it. I don't know what the Holy Spirit can do for me. I don't, I don't see why I need Jesus. Well, we can spend years talking about what happened in Scripture. We can spend years analysing and studying and, and trying, to, trying to understand it. But at the end of the day, faith is faith. Faith is a gap in knowledge where we have to just use it as a bridge between us and God. But the more we study and the more we understand, the smaller that gap gets. It might start out like this. And the more we study and study and understand and read and, and pray and come to listen to testimony and all the rest of it, the gap eventually is that big. But there must always be a gap. If we wait until we know everything before we get baptised, before we commit to Jesus, then we're missing the point. We're called to have faith. We're called to, to practice what Jesus practiced in his life, that care, compassion, love. And we're called, most of all, to ask him into our lives. Just like these men on the road to Emmaus. When they ask him in, suddenly, at that moment, he takes authority over their lives. He's breaking bread at their table. He's the one sharing it out. And they recognise this. Their eyes were opened and they recognised him and they, he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talk, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once in the middle of the night to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised them when he broke the bread. So I want to leave you today with that image, with that implied challenge. It's only when we invite Jesus in, it's only when we, when we start trying to mimic him, when we start trying to show the love and the grace and the compassion, not just to those who share our own values and views, but to everyone, that Jesus actually enters our hearts and changes us from the inside. That's the moment when Jesus is given full control of our lives and he can dictate what we do. And I can tell you that is the best thing that you can do with your life. Because when we submit ourselves to Jesus, when we put ourselves under his control, then suddenly... We know that as we go through life, we are following the path that God the Father, the one that created us, has set for us. And that path through Jesus will always lead to salvation and an eternity in heaven with him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Gospel of Luke. And thank you, Lord, for his work in investigating all the different sources and accounts that were available to him and putting in the work to 
prepare what is now Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. Father, there are so many, so many examples of Jesus's character and love and compassion that we cannot cover them all in one sermon. But Lord, thank you that this morning we've been reminded that Jesus's message is just as relevant today as it was when he walked on this earth himself. That Jesus's message is just as needed in this world today as it ever has been. And Father, we pray that as we go through our lives, when we are met with situations or people groups that reject us or don't act in a way that we think they should, help us to follow the example of Jesus. Not to, not to fold over and become a doormat for people to walk over, but to be resolute in our faith. Not persecuting and condemning those who are different to us, but instead focusing on God's word, focusing on the mission and the path that he has given us to build his kingdom, to make disciples of those that we meet by showing them love and care and showing them the heart of Jesus. So Father God, help us, <clears throat> help us this week to be the people that you want us to be. Help us to study your word but Father, help us to absorb the truth of your gospel, the good news, so that we can take it out into the world and share it with those that we meet. Father God, bless us, we pray. Whatever we face this week, may we face it with you and may we act and conduct ourselves in a way that honours you and brings others into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.